Hey, tennis fans, and welcome to another edition of Matchpoint Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada. We're also members of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm Ben Lewis, joined alongside Mike McIntyre, and here to recap the final Grand Slam of the 2021 season, the U.S. Open. What a spectacular tournament it was. We had our second Canadian ever reaching the singles final on the women's side in Leila Fernandez, and then we had no Novak Djokovic coming a match short of incredible history as Daniil Medvedev wins his first. Mike, I, I don't even know where to start. I think uh, the Canadian side and Canadian angle is probably the best place. Yeah, and let's start with the, the women's side because that was the one that kept you and me particularly busy this week with a host of extra media obligations mm-hmm. as everybody wanted to find out about Leila Annie Fernandez, a player that you and I have followed for many years and, and had on the podcast already at least a half dozen times, I want to say. And so that was the story that gripped not just the Canadian sporting world, tennis world, but, but the tennis world at large as people were discovering this young talent that we have to add to the list of already impressive players who have come out of the woodwork over the last several years. And so why don't we start with that? It ultimately fell one match short, but you can't fault Layla Annie. I think she simply ran out of gas in that final. And as much as her mind was willing to do it and still compete and be in there at every moment, her body wasn't quite as sharp as it was throughout the first parts of the tournament. Understandably so, after all those grueling three-set matches against the best women's tennis players on the planet. Yeah, look, look for me. I, I think Layla had the toughest draw of anybody in this tournament. You look at the players she had to play, and even starting in the first couple of matches, I know Anna Kanya is a player who's working her way back, but that's a former top 20 player that opens your tournament. You have Kaya Kanepi, a seasoned veteran who's been to multiple Grand Slam quarterfinals in the second round. And then after those two matches, I mean... It's a host of superstars. She beats, you know, the defending champion, best hardcore player on earth, Naomi Osaka, takes out the three-time Grand Slam champion who's been playing phenomenal tennis, by the way, this summer, Angie Kerber, who played exceptional tennis at Wimbledon. She won her first title in a few years just prior on the grass court. So someone who's super in form. Another long three-setter there takes out Alina Svitolina, recent bronze medalist, and another long three-setter. I mean, I, sh- I should preface and say, like, the win over Osaka for me was already more than enough. <laughs> and it could then, have ended there. It could have ended there, and that would have been enough for everyone to say, wow, what a player. Good for exactly. her. That's a huge result, right? But it but it kept going. And and you haven't even mentioned Sabalenka yet. There was another one after I Spitalina, know. right? I was, well, yeah, I'm, and I'm just getting there. Exactly. Another three-set thriller over Arena Sabalenka, 7-6-4-6-6-4 in that match. And... The fact that she was able to turn the tides, I think if anybody had sat down and many of us did here in Canada and around the world for that matter, sat down and tuned into this match and you look at the way the first three games of that match went, Arena Sabalenka is up 3-0 in eight minutes, blistering the ball, hitting winners from every area of the court. You're thinking, oh my gosh, well, Layla has just run into someone that is is too world-class. She's not quite at that level yet. What a phenomenal run. It ends here. She found a way. She somehow dug deep tactically, changed positions on serve, you know, fought her way back into that match, somehow ekes out a first set and, and defeats Arena Sabalenka, who for me has been, you know, one of the most dangerous players of the tour over the past two years, probably you know, basically third to Barty in Osaka. For me, she's probably the third best player in the world. And I know she has the number two next to her name. Um, So for her to problem solve the way she did in that match, 
And I, I'm using the term problem solving. And normally 19 year olds aren't able to do that on the fly in tennis matches with this much success. So she does that and finally gets into the final. And it was a, a clash of two Cinderella stories. And, and one of them had to take it. And credit to Emma Raducanu. I mean, it's, it's a host of things you could point out in terms of stats that are mind-boggling that Emma Raducanu has won this tournament. It is truly astonishing. And I'm not being, you know, over the top when I'm saying she is the most improbable tennis champion, I think, in the history of the sport. Yeah, I'd have to agree with that. And and this was the most improbable final I feel like I've ever seen either between these two players because I mean, at the start of the summer, Emma Raducanu was ranked outside the top 350 on the WTA tour. She's she's never won a tour match, you know, prior. She, she's never played a WTA 500 or, or even 1,000. And here she is now as a U.S. Open champion. It's just the most incredible story to have these two players converge in the finals and play a great final. There were some moments in the first couple of games where you saw some nerves. But after that, I thought they both pretty much settled in and had some fantastic rallies, entertaining points. It was high drama right up until the end, even with Raducanu serving at 5-3. Leila Annie Fernandez has saved a couple of championship points. She got a couple of break points. It felt like the momentum was starting to swing back to her. She was like smiling in those moments, this smile as if like, hey, I'm not done yet. I've still got something here. It was almost like a Jimmy Connors type of like, hey, I'm not quite <laughs> out of this yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and and still you had this feeling that she's not quite done yet. Her magical run might not be done yet. And it might not have been, if not for an unfortunate um, cut on Radicanu's leg that did require a medical timeout. And, and in the moment, Layla showed a little frustration. And, you know, those were the the nerves of the moment and wanting to keep your momentum going. And I totally understand how, you know, she would be, uh, you know, imploring to continue with the match, but you know, a lot of players don't know what the rules are. I know we all didn't particularly know what the rules are in terms of if there's blood on the court needs to be cleaned. And if there's a player who's actively bleeding, no matter how small it might be, that also has to be taken care of. So that was completely out of Emma Raducanu's hands. And Leila Fernandez acknowledged afterwards that, you know, yeah, totally understandable. What can you do? It's bad luck. But her momentum was going so strong in that moment prior to that that I thought she was going to flip this match around. Um, So credit to her for making it exciting right up until the end. And absolutely no shame in in defeat. She's moved into the top 30 on the WTA. It's going to open up so many more doors. I mean, she'd be seated at the next slam with a ranking of of 28th in the world. Um, you know, the, the prize money alone is something that's going to sustain her and her family. And, and that was a nice side story of just seeing the family connection and what it meant to her to have most of her family there with her along for the ride in New York. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's so spectacular and, um, uh, credit to her father who could not be there actually in New York, but he's been speaking and, uh, has done some press and talked about, this is a family that, that came from nothing and, uh, was almost emotional discussing how Canada took them in and, and gave them this opportunity. And it's just, it's a truly unbelievable story for both Layla Fernandez and Emma Raducanu as you reflected on Layla saving a couple of those championship points my mind wandered back to her first WTA final, which was in Acapulco, Mexico from 2020 against, uh, I think it was Heather Watson. That's right. And how many of those match points, championship points, did she save in that match? Um, just fighting, fighting, rallying. And, and I recall, you know, forcing that fifth set 
um, and still still surviving before finally losing. But um, she is such a scrappy fighter. She will not go away. And I'm thinking even the semifinal match against Arena Sabalenka, Sabalenka had a set point in that first set. So who thinks how that tide might turn if Sabalenka wins the first? Layla hangs on there and, and gets herself to a final. Um, couple points on Emma Raducanu in this run, as you mentioned, uh, was outside the top 350 before the summer started. I, I guess her first introduction to her was Wimbledon. Of course, that run was astonishing, and she received a wild card entry there. She was number 338 at that time and makes the round of 16. Uh, but not only to have won this tournament, she won three matches in qualifying and then another seven in a row. So 10 consecutive wins. She didn't drop a set. And the closest set that she played was 7-5. I mean, these are like mind-boggling. This is like Serena Williams-level domination. It's it's staggering. She actually only dropped 35 games the whole tournament. And when kind of the blinders really went on for me that I knew I had to watch her carefully was beating Sarah Cerebe's Tormo 6-love, six 6-1. Six that was like the big wake-up call. It was like, oh, my goodness, she could do some serious damage. Yeah, she just destroyed everybody in her path, really en route to that title. And uh, it wasn't the same level of competition, let's be honest, that Layla Annie had to face. But -hmm. you can only beat who's put in front of you. And she did that without any trouble, including Olympic gold medalist Belinda Bencic, including Maria Zachary, who's a terrific player as well on the tour. And we saw what she did to, to Bianca as well earlier in the tournament. So she's a terrific player. Um, and, and you felt for her a little bit because she felt like she had squandered an opportunity there at the age of 26. Uh, I mean, she'll still have many more, but uh, compared mm-hmm. to these youngsters, for sure. Um, I, I'm, I'm speechless at this point. I, I have nothing more to add because it's still, you know, like I woke up this morning and I was like, did that really happen yesterday? I woke up Sunday. Did that really happen on Saturday? Did we really see these two youngsters, these two teenagers play in the U.S. Open finals? And um it was kind of cool also to have that Canadian connection with Emma Raducanu, which I was happy to point out every time I talked to British press over the <laughs> last course. couple of weeks. Well, she is from Toronto, you know. And then I asked her after her semifinal win about her Canadian roots. And uh, she mentioned that, um, you know, she appreciates all the support she got from Canada throughout the week. And she did also say that she still has her Canadian passport. So, uh Hey, you just never know. I can at least, you know, we can hold on to that hope that maybe one day she'll come back to us. But uh, congrats to her. Congrats to the the British tennis fans and, and media members that we know so well that we've talked to over the years. Uh, a very special moment. We know what it's like because Bianca did it two years ago. And uh, again, to have Leila Annie in the finals here. So unexpected. Um, I, I got to be honest. I didn't know that Leila Annie would necessarily have Grand Slam potential in her. And that's that's not a slight to her, but... Who saw this coming? I did not see this coming. Certainly not so soon. But now this kind of changes everything and it changes people's expectations. And I don't know about you, but I've been asked time and time again the past 24 hours. Well, do you think now she's going to go on to dominate her and Emma Raducanu? I'll throw to you first here. What, what do you think about what holds, you know, what the future holds for these two moving forward? Yeah, that's that's a very good question. And um, I, I think sometimes this is the difficulty uh, specifically on the women's side, because people take a peek over at the men's tour and are so used to three players essentially dominating the tour and so used to three faces who are consistently winning these major title slams over and over again, that we think maybe that should be the norm. And it, it simply isn't. 
And there are so many capable players on the women's side, all of whom can can win slams. You know, conceivably, you look at any of the the names inside the the top thirty; they're all phenomenal players who could be slam worthy. I was I was going to say top fifty, and now I'm thinking, do I have to start top saying top three hundred, <laughs> top two hundred, based on what we just saw? So, um, I, I think sometimes we have to do a better job when we're you know, even just reporting, discussing tennis of living more in the present moment. Let's enjoy this phenomenal result. She's a U.S. Open finalist. You know, if you kind of just grabbed her career and you compared that to all the other tennis careers that have come and gone, anybody who could ever claim they were a U.S. Open finalist is an amazing success story. So let's let's keep that in mind. This is a phenomenal result. We don't have to be thinking ahead to like, can she win the Australian Open? Is she one of the favorites? We, we don't have to go there yet. Um, yeah. Just let this sort of simmer and let's just enjoy this. And, and also, have we not learned, and when I say we, I mean, you know, tennis fans in this country, media in this country, have we not learned from what some prior Canadian success stories have then had to endure after making a Grand Slam final? We go back to 2014, Jeannie Bouchard. Mm-hmm. What an incredible season that was for her. Two slam semis and the Wimbledon finals. Everyone started talking about how she was going to be the next big thing in tennis. And clearly that hasn't panned out for a multitude of reasons. Milos Raonic, Wimbledon finals, 2000, what was it, 16? Yep. Um, what has he had to endure since that time? Injury after injury after injury. And even more recently, what Bianca's had to go through, she's finding it so tough to stay healthy enough to recapture that form. So... I think we need to pump the brakes a little bit. Let's not put too much pressure on a young emerging talent. And like you just said, enjoy this moment, take it for what it is and just let it be at that. Well said. Um, there you have it on the men's side, Emma Raducanu capturing uh, her first career Grand Slam title, first qualifier ever to win a slam. And Layla Fernandez, a, a first-time slam finalist. We can talk about a couple more Canadians. And um, on the double side, there was certainly rising expectation just for the fantastic summer that her and her partner had. Gabby Dabrowski and Louisa Stefani have just been a powerhouse this summer. They made three consecutive finals leading into the U.S. Open. They won that title at uh, the National Bank Open in Montreal so surely the confidence was high and they honestly played a great great tournament and it was just one that had an unfortunate ending Uh, they got into the semifinals and then they're facing Coco Goff and Katie McNally obviously a great pairing of two top American players and uh, Louisa Stefani 6-6 in a tie break and and she goes down and and seems to badly injure her leg and knee area and they have to pull the plug. Now, Stefani did tweet afterwards that she's going to be okay, but just an unfortunate way to end what had been such a great summer that I'd still like to look at the positives, uh, how strong a doubles team they have been. They were the hottest doubles team on the WTA in my mind, without a Mm -hmm. doubt, making those three finals, um, heading in with so much momentum to the U.S. Open, Gave them a great chance to advance to the finals there as well. Um, so sad to see it was derailed by an injury and hope to see them back soon. Gabby Dabrowski tweeted out, you know, life sometimes. Thank you to everyone for their very kind messages of love and support. Canada plus Brazil uh, will be back before you know it. So um, it's nice to hear that these two and, and how could they not have it in their minds to continue as a partnership? Because what they've shown this summer is there going to be one of the top, you know, women's doubles teams to contend with? So, um, you know, Gabby hadn't won a title since 2019 before these two paired up and, and hadn't had a regular partner in, in basically a couple of years either. 
And so now that she's got this one and they just seem to jive so well together, I think there's so much the two of them can um, can accomplish moving forward. And and I'm excited to see what the, the slam season will bring in 2022 if they are you know able to uh, lock down this partnership for the foreseeable future. Yeah, and just I, I get the sense and the vibe that it is absolutely something they want to continue going. I, I know, and I think you asked Impress about them discussing the partnership further for 2022. They said they hadn't talked about it yet, but you see them posting and sharing videos of each other on, on social media after match wins, and there's such a delightful energy between the both of them. Um, Gabby has said how they, they were friends first before actually entering in that doubles partnership and how that has helped. So I really think this is going to be a team that lasts into 2022 and, and maybe for, for years to come after that. Um, we should talk just briefly more about Bianca Andrescu because, you know, we have discussed difficulty with injuries post 2019 U.S. Open such an up and down season, the up for me, obviously the Miami open final, um, I, I thought this was actually very much a positive step for this tournament at the U.S. Open. There were the physical issues that kind of came into play the very end of her match in the round of 16. But I think it's been important for Bianca to get, you know, three consecutive match wins. She's working with a new coach in Sven Gronfeld, just seeing some results and fruits of that labor that now maybe she has something to build on for a couple more tournaments of the year and, and maybe carrying that over into 2022. Yeah, and she won the matches that she was supposed to win. She didn't go out against a player, um, you know, that that really with her ranking and, and her pedigree, I guess you could say now, that she should be winning. So she got through those first three rounds, especially round two and three, in straight sets quite easily, which was nice to see. And Maria Sacri, again, is is absolutely no slouch. So there's no shame yeah. in losing to a player of her caliber. They played earlier this year with Bianca prevailing in a tight three-set match. This time it went to the uh, Greek tennis player, um, as, of course. So, yeah, it'd be interesting to see what Bianca can do for the rest of the year. Now, there doesn't seem like there's that much tennis to be played for the remainder of, of 2021. So maybe that gives Bianca time to, to fully heal up um, and, and be ready for the start of the next season. But, uh, yeah, it's tough to know what will happen next, right? And it's, it's tough to say, will she be able to get those health issues under control or, or not. It's, it's been a constant challenge for her even prior to her U S open triumph two years ago, but dealing with injuries going back to her junior days too. So um, hey, let's see what happens here. But Indian Wells is a great place for her too. And uh, a place where she's had so much success in the past too. So maybe that will continue the, the progress we saw at the U S open. Yeah, I, I should hope so. And unfortunately with this result, uh, over 1700 points are falling off the rankings, So she's going to drop to number 20, but I think if we have learned anything from this U S open, maybe rankings don't matter so much <laughs> based on results. They certainly aren't always a predictor. Um, obviously we have our top players who have consistent success and you want to be seated, which she will be if she's number 20. Um, but yeah, I, I'm not sure how much more tennis is in store for her for the remainder of the season. Indian Wells has to be a spot. I think she plays. You are listening to match point camp. Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada. We're members of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. And we'll shift over to the men's side. And obviously, this was the talking point going into the tournament. The discussion over it was getting greater and greater as we came closer to the finals. Novak Djokovic and his quest for the ultimate in history, a calendar slam, winning all four majors in one season, potentially surpassing Rafael Nadal and Roger Federer on the Grand Slam count with number 21. 
This is, I think, the final that we expected. Djokovic versus Danil Medvedev. And our big question was, was there a challenger or a guy that could beat Djokovic in this draw? And I think we can give ourselves a pat on the back because I think we named the two guys who could have done it. And one of them did it. Danil Medvedev defeating Djokovic 6-4, 6-4, 6-4 to capture his first slam title. Um, An exceptional performance from the Russian. And I think finally, I don't know if I'm going to say it was pressure. It was fatigue. But Djokovic is human. And it's reasonable to think he would finally lose a match at a major this year. Yeah, and afterwards, I think he even said that he felt um, somewhat relieved that it was over, not the way he would have liked it to have ended, but just the fact that that's it. No more questions about the calendar year slam and uh, equaling Rod Laver and and all of that. I couldn't imagine carrying that around. And he's been carrying it around in particular since Wimbledon, as he headed in here with with three of the slams already uh, accumulated. So he's been carrying around that, you know, daily, probably being asked daily by someone about it in his, you know, passing travels, whatnot, for the last two months. Um, that being said, I'm, I'm kind of surprised. Uh, I, I didn't think Medvedev was going to be able to do it. I certainly didn't see it happening in straight sets. And we got to give him all the credit in the world for kind of pulling a Djokovic against Djokovic and continuing his strong play from this summer. We saw it here in Toronto as we watched that, that final live here at the Aviva Centre at the National Bank Open. And uh, Medvedev was playing terrific there. He carried that forward. He's got his first Grand Slam title, so absolute credit to him. And um, I know you watched a little bit more of this match than I did, so uh, why don't you give your take about exactly what went down, how he was able to uh, take Novak uh, down in this match? Yeah, look, I I think uh, although... Medvedev does have some unorthodoxy to his shots, particularly his forehand wing, which is an unusual looking shot. Very successful, but unusual. There are similarities between the two of these players tactically in how they play. And Medvedev is an unbelievable counterpuncher. For him to be able to be such a good counterpuncher at his size at six foot six, his lanky long arms, his court coverage was immense. And it's so rare to probably pick out a match where I would actually say, I think I see someone moving even better on the court than Djokovic. And Medvedev, I think, outmoved and outcovered the court. And he kind of outmaneuvered Novak. And I've seen so many times where Djokovic has won where he's been the cause of the frustration of the opponent where they just can't hit through the other guy and another ball is back, another ball is back, and it obviously leads to unforced errors. And the tail end of this match... Medvedev did that to Novak. Novak's frustration was mounting. He couldn't win points easily, and his return was gone. His return was not there. Medvedev, to his credit, served great, but I've I've seen Novak deal with great serves in the past, and his return game was just not there. I think his long five-setter with Zverev certainly did play a role in terms of energy. We saw Medvedev, of course, beat Felix in straight sets, would have been the more fresh player, but he honestly deserves all the credit for this victory. I thought he played like a formidable match. I think he would have had a, a chance to win no, against Novak, even if Djokovic was at the height of his powers. I think it could have turned into a long five-set affair, but for me, Novak had one opening in the second set, Medvedev took the first 6-4, and he was serving 1-2. They had a very, very long service game, multiple break points to go up 3-1, and Medvedev always produced the goods. And um, a lot of these long, long, lengthy exchanges, which we expected, and and Medvedev turned out to be the fresher player. I got to say, at the end of all this, I am feeling a sense of 
disappointment that I didn't think I would feel uh, heading into the tournament. I really didn't feel strongly one way or the other of like whether I wanted Novak to do it or not. And that's because I'm impartial for the most part. I mean, unless there's a Canadian in there, in which case I'll admit I am pulling for them, uh, given that we are a Canadian podcast and we're Canadian tennis journalists. But otherwise, you know, I just want to see a good show out there. But as the tournament went on and it got closer and closer, I started feeling this sense of like, there's something special that could happen here. Something special that you and I and many people haven't seen in our lives in the men's game, which mm -hmm. is to see someone win all four slams in the calendar year. I wasn't around when Rod Laver did it in, in the late 1960s. And even when Steffi Graf did it in 1988, I was pretty young. So it's not like it resonated with me the same as it would now. And I just kind of lament the fact that it would have been so cool for tennis to have someone win all four slams in one year across three different surfaces, across different continents. Um, so I just think what a cool opportunity from the, the history perspective that we've kind of lost out on. And uh, so, yeah, I'm surprised. I didn't think I would feel this way, but uh, I would have liked to have seen him do it for, for those reasons for tennis. And, and I do like Novak. I would have been happy for him if he, if he had been able to pull it off. Um, and I just think we might never see that again. It, I, I think you hit the nail on the head with that last point. How conceivable is it for Djokovic to manage being in this position another time? It, it just seems like it's, it's too dumb. It's too much domination. It's too much perfection. And, and, yeah. to, and to I don't even mean for him. I just mean, no, even, just in general, beyond, just in general, will we yeah. see someone be able to do this? It's right. uh, just an absurd feat to even get close to. Exactly. Just uh, arriving at this final year, 27, 27 and oh, in majors. And you're looking, back to some of the, his highlights of the year and the Australian Open, it felt like that one was so straightforward, but the, the turning point where I think this all became a possibility was like two matches in succession at the French Open. You you defeat like the absolute most difficult challenge toppling Nadal at Roland Garros at his favorite court in this unbelievable semifinal, one of the matches of the year. Then you come back from two sets to love down in a major final and, and beat Stefano Tsitsipas from there. And you think like how strong must his confidence have been after, after pulling off that. And I, I felt like he dominated Wimbledon. You know, we had the discussion about the, the calendar slam also plus Olympics. And uh, of course, Tokyo didn't work out. He didn't get the gold medal or, or medal there. In fact, so he had, he had shown, shown signs, pardon me, uh, of, I guess, uh, being slightly vulnerable because he didn't win in Tokyo. You know, that, that was kind of the first sign of like him not winning a major, major victory he was focused on. But uh, one thing I am pleased about in, in terms of this result of having a next gen player win is they're doing it over one of the big three. And I, I feel like in, in a way we invalidated Dominic Team's title last year. He absolutely deserved that U.S. Open last year, but I, I've heard that conversation. Well, can someone take it from one of the big three? Right. And Mevidev did. Like when we talked last summer around this time with Jimmy Connors, he said he didn't want to just see the big three retire, leave the game, and then the next generation start picking it up. Exactly. He wanted to see that back and forth between them. So I agree with you. It was It was... If I'm going to look at a positive from this result and get over my disappointment that we're not going to see the calendar slam, uh, it's the fact that, uh, like you just mentioned, it's the next guard taking it from the older guard. And uh, so credit to Danil Medvedev for doing that. There's only so many people out there that can say they've won a grand slam against a member of the big three. That is a pretty 
exclusive club of players that Medvedev yeah, has just joined. Very much so. And I, I was just looking at um, some of our major winners since 2005 outside of the big three. And I, and I know we did for a portion of time, I think call it the big four when Andy Murray, particularly when, when he became world number one and he's been to countless grand slam finals. So he has three titles and then Stan Frank with three titles after that, you know, you're just picking off of one hand here with Juan Martin Del Potro, that U S open title from 2009 Dominic team from last year, U S open Marin Cilic, his title going back to 2014 and now Danil Medvedev. I mean, this is a very, very short list, particularly when we take away the names of Wawrinka and Murray, who kind of have that proven pedigree of, of winning Grand Slams. Yeah, well, Wawrinka and Murray are the only players out there who've beaten members of the big three more than one time in a Grand Slam final. Murray's done it twice. Wawrinka, amazingly, has done it three times. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, kudos again, Medvedev doing it once now. And, um, you know, Medvedev's going to win more slams. I think there's, you know, there's some so. things we can probably agree on it. Medvedev is going to win more slams before it's all said and done. Uh, maybe many more, who knows, right? Yeah, yeah, it's certainly possible. And, uh, you know, when we have Dominic team back in the conversation, I hope next year, um, I think we're talking about very, very interesting times for the men's tour that maybe there's a little more belief of this generation that can we stop Novak Djokovic? We're obviously going to have the effort from Nadal and Federer to try and come back healthy. That's a huge question mark, but a return of Dominic team. And then of course, Medvedev, Tsitsipas, Verev, all these players and our Canadians who are rising rapidly. And I'll segue and mention Felix Ojealiasim here because this was a fantastic result. It was one step further than Wimbledon reaching his first career semifinal, unbelievable tournament. Daniil Medvedev, of course, proved to proved to be too much in the semis, but I, I think this is really uh, a real breakthrough moment for Felix. We've seen them kind of incrementally, and I, I think he's starting to be one of those players who belongs in the top 10 conversation. Well, he's just about there on his own accord now with, uh, with his results, so that's mm-hmm. certainly where he seems to be going, and wouldn't it be cool if we could get Dennis and Felix into the top 10? Um, that would certainly be something. Uh, he showed a lot in this tournament. He's shown a lot over the course of the summer, uh, making the quarters at Wimbledon, making the semis now at the U.S. Open. I think striving for more consistency is certainly something he's going to be working towards, and you could say that about uh, just about anybody, really. So, um, but, but that is something that Felix needs to do is a bit more, maybe not week in, week out, but month in, month out, have a level of consistency that both him and Dennis seem to have lacked over the course of 2021. And, you know, I, I was encouraged in his post-match press conference that he seemed, I'm not going to say upbeat, but he was still focusing on the positives. And, and I like that about him. He doesn't dwell on negative for too long. He doesn't get too down. Um, he's really great to talk to and press, whether he wins mm-hmm. or loses. I got to give him credit for that. Felix is absolutely terrific. And he won the Sportsperson of the U.S. Um, US Swing uh, Award um, for being... Um, Gosh, I'm at a loss of words here. It's been a long couple of weeks for me too here yes. um, for being such a great sportsman throughout yeah. to his fellow peers, media members, the way he carries himself, has handled himself. And so it was really nice to see him being rewarded for that after his uh, semifinal uh, post-match press conference. So great job, Felix. And uh, there's just so much, you know, we're going to wrap up here, but there's just so much for us to be excited about in the coming years. Layla, Annie, Bianca, Dennis, Felix, Gabby and doubles. Vashik and Milos are, are still doing their thing. Jeannie mm-hmm. Bouchard's going to come back and hopefully continue the progress we saw from her before injuries. Um, there's just so much going on in Canada. And with 
Davis Cup and Billie Jean Cup still on the horizon uh, later this year. Um, be great to see some international performances from our Canadian squad men and women. I hadn't even given Davis Cup a thought, and I, I think we can be a powerhouse. And we saw what we accomplished um, as, as, a, as a men's team two years ago, making the finals there and, and falling to Spain. And that was really with Felix Oje Aliasim on the sidelines for most of it, and Dennis and, and, and Vasha completely carrying the torch. I, I know I, we probably can't count on Milos at this stage just with health issues, but uh, the way Felix is playing tennis wise right now um dennis can flip the switch and turn it on at any time as we know he's such a streaky player that they're again going to be a contender to to win this and um you know sportsnet's arash madani made the point of uh thinking of top tennis nations and he's like what what countries can you you know name that are a better tennis nation than canada and i think the list is very very small probably maybe spain or russia maybe yeah, and especially putting the men and the women together in that statement, right? Yeah. We've got strength on both sides. I would say it's pretty much even, too, between the two sides. Like, they are both terrific at this point, both in singles and in mm-hmm. doubles. Um, so I'm excited about that, you know, to close out 2021. And, um, you know, to wrap the U.S. Open up, what a fantastic, fantastically absurd tournament in so many ways. Um, I'm as exhausted as Layla Annie and Novak right now. I don't know about you, but <laughs> yeah, I am looking forward to a well-deserved break as well before we come back strong with some more great content for you listeners um, for the rest of this fall. Yeah, yeah, we'll let you know now that uh, next week will be a week off. But uh, there's so many interviews, by the way, that, that we still have here uh, on Matchpoint Canada. And, and I'm sure our listeners, you haven't got to everything, but especially during the National Bank Open, we put out so many. So, so please, if there is anything you haven't listened to, it's not dated. Check it out. Um, we had so much coverage over the past couple of weeks. We just need one day, one week, pardon me, not one day, uh, to, to recharge. And we have more interviews already actually in the vault to come later this season, right, Mike? So uh, still great things to come in, in 2021 for us. Uh, you've been listening to Matchpoint Canada. We will talk to you guys next time.